In today's episode, we're talking about the mindset of having a physical and healthy mindset. We're talking about different forms of anxiety and how they've triggered themselves in my life as well as our guest's life and things that he's done to overcome those areas. And honestly, there's some of the things that I've started doing in my life, not knowing that they were actual ways to overcome anxiety and also how mental and physical health play an important part of the way that we look at our life and the way we deal with health and mental health. Today on The Whole Person Mindset, we have Jonathan McLernan, kind of like if he was a student at McDonald's, you know, McLernan. Anyway, he's got a really awesome and diverse background from nanotechnology research to chemistry from the University of Victoria to Navy Marine engineer in Canada. And well, honestly, he was just kind of like a global nomad for a while. Over 45 countries and five continents to a power line technician to nutrition and supplement store owner. Currently an online nutrition coach as well as mentor and teaching new people how to build businesses from the ground up. He is certified in so many other areas. He's almost been killed in South Africa. And this guy just has an interesting life and story. So I cannot wait to welcome to the show, Jonathan McLernan. Jonathan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing awesome, man. Thanks for the intro. I, you know, every, every intro is kind of different. And I, I like that one. I like that you, you do a personal one every time and uh, you just kind of riff it. So that was really cool. Thank you. Well, you know, I didn't get in it before the music is that you've also lost like over a hundred pounds. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, That's there's kind that of a big too. deal. It, it is actually. Um, it, and it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Cause I think sometimes people, they'll look at that. And the first question is like, how did you do it? As though there's this one way to do it. And, and people are kind of looking for a quick a tip or a trick or something like that, you know? And I think we would love a simple answer like, Oh, you know, I just uh, started going keto and the weight just fell off. Um, the truth is a lot more co- complicated than that. And I say, if I was to add up the number of pounds I actually lost uh, along with gained, uh, I'd say I probably lost more than 600 pounds. <laughs> just right. because I was a classic yo-yo dieter for many years struggling with my weight and sort of my emotional relationship with myself, my body and food. So um, when people hear that it took, you know, six years to lose 100 pounds, they're surprised. But I would put it this way. If I if I knew now, if I knew back then what I know now, it would not have taken six years. But I think I had to go through this process of struggle and discovery to get to this place. Yeah. So, I mean, now, now you got me curious. What are some of the things that you wish you knew then that you know now? Well, I would say like I'm, I've become a dietary agnostic. In other words, uh, there, there really isn't a best diet. Um, th- there's a process of kind of trial and error and figuring out what works for you, your lifestyle, your body. Um, and you know what? Like, let's say losing weight over six months sounds like a long time until you realize, oh, I was struggling for like five years. Yeah. So we, we've been sold for a very long time in sort of the fitness and the weight loss industry in a very predatory fashion for starters, but that this should be fast and easy, you know, 12 weeks, 21 days, 30 days, whatever. And so people's expectations about what is realistically possible in a short window of time have have really become distorted. And that leads to unmet expectations, incredible discouragement, this isn't working and quitting and so on. And the truth is, there's no, why take a stand against diets, you know, is because 
a diet says I will I will temporarily change my behavior to achieve a permanent result, and that can't I, happen. So to understand that if I'm going to embark on a weight loss journey, I'm embarking on transforming who I am as a person, how I live my life. And it means not going back to the old person I once was. You know, the Bible says, as a man thinketh, so is he. So we're in this process of shifting our mindset on both uh, mental and physical health. Because you know, part of your addiction to food, I believe probably stemmed out of some anxiety and mental issues that you were struggling with. And so go into a little bit of detail about some of the struggles that you were facing. Cause man, I I also uh, struggle with anxiety and food as well. So, uh, and we can maybe touch on this sidetrack a little bit later, but, uh, you know, because I went through trauma about 10 years ago, as you, as you briefly touched on um, while living in South Africa. And the response to that was to turn to food and food became my source of changing the channel in my head. Uh, I, I'm also a, a Christian and a lot of people when they go through difficult experiences and trauma will turn to drugs and alcohol. And I, I like to say that all behavior makes sense. And I don't mean that it's, you know, all behavior is desirable or maybe acceptable, but it makes sense if we understand the human condition. So for me, I turned to food because it was socially acceptable. That's, I want to, what happened in South Africa? Would you tell us? Yeah. Well, I was, I was working for, um, my wife and I were down there um, working for an NGO um, teaching underprivileged youth, helping. So South Africa has a youth unemployment crisis and they have a failing education system. It's a bit of a failed state, to be honest. It's a beautiful country. So anyways, we're down there working with underprivileged youth, kind of teaching life skills, helping them to become uh, more, more employable and really, and then getting them placed in internships. And while living on a nature reserve where we, where we were educated, they had this education center. Um, uh, one night I was jumped and attacked uh, when it was dark out by four men as I was walking back to, to my cabin by myself. And it had nothing to do with the students or the work we were doing. These are, these are guys that had they'd cut a hole in the fence and they'd broken into the reserve. And, um, you know, one of them happened to be a, a ranger, actually. Um, and so that, that experience... Um, I might, maybe it sounds a bit bold to say this in one sense, but say I really kind of tasted uh, uh, a little bit of what hell might be like. So it's dark, it's night, I'm being attacked, I'm screaming for help, nobody's hearing me and nobody's coming because <laughs> they're all in another building having a good time together. And uh, that, that was a pretty, a pretty traumatic experience. Um, and it wasn't just slightly beat, like you almost died. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was beaten over the head with, with like rocks, um, bricks or rocks. I'm not quite sure what it was. It was dark. I didn't see the, the implements that were hitting me across the head. Um, the goal here was to beat me to death. Um, these men had done this the night before. And, um, and, I, and in one sense, I don't want to like necessarily glorify the experience of the fact that I survived. I believe that it's by God's grace that I survived. But, um, you know, I, I was, I was concussed. I was stunned. I was, you know, trying to process everything that was happening. And, um, but I did manage, I'm also fairly big and strong. And so I think just um, maybe instinct take over. Maybe God gave me strength that's a little bit more than I would normally possess. And I was able to fight my way to my feet and kind of stumble over to the building where everybody else was. And, uh, you know, my face is covered in blood. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm bruised. I'm stunned and just like I've been attacked and so on. And kind of, you know, chaos ensues in this building where all our students are because we're like, well, how many are out there? We don't even know. It's nighttime and they could be traveling in a pack of 15 for all we know. And so 
we were kind of trapped in this building for for about 45 minutes because because we're out on a nature reserve it's 45 minutes out of town and it it uh took the police quite some time to get their act together and get out there because kind of the other part of south africa is the police are corrupt and inept especially the lowest levels um they just really take the position to hold a paycheck (laughs) so um all, all of that to say in, in that experience, so there, there is a moment in, in an experience like this where we, at least where I contemplated my mortality and I contemplated where I stood before God. And in that moment, I felt like uh, I wasn't saved. And it sounds, you know, here I am, I, I've, I've been, uh, you know, a practicing Christian since I was about 14. And um, to have that thought at 29. Um, what it was is I would say, God showed me that I was a cerebral Christian. In other words, I can quote Bible verses. I can speak eloquently about it and stuff like that. And God said, where's your heart? Yeah. And so ultimately I would say I'm grateful for the experience. Um, I wouldn't remove it from my past. Uh, I wouldn't ask for it again. Um, but it was, a, and there's, there's other facets of the experience that have become a powerful part of shaping who I am um, to this day. And so the spillover from that was my way of dealing with trauma, because I don't think anybody's really equipped to deal with it, was to turn to food and use food to basically, I call it, change the channel in my head. So how did that play out for the rest of your life? Like, how did that impact the anxiety and the uh, food addiction? Well, the food addiction started fairly early on after the incident, and I was in denial for a period of time as the weight was starting to pile on, um, because because it's such a dramatic shift in who I saw myself to be. I, I, you could almost say like it took a while for my brain to catch up to the reality of my physical condition. I was still seeing myself as this this athletic individual, when in fact I was becoming obese because of my my food habits. But denialism is kind of a it's also a coping mechanism. Um, but with trauma, the other part of it is like, I would relive the incident over and over again, uh, like trying to rewrite it in my head. Um, and that, that's, that's a losing game as well, because every time, it, you know, it would just make me angry. And so I found myself really struggling with like rage and sometimes just coming out of nowhere. And it really, again, conflicted with my sense of identity. It, you know, I said, this isn't who I am. I'm not an angry, vengeful, violent person, but I have angry, vengeful, violent thoughts coming into my head. And I really struggled with that because I didn't want them there, but they were coming anyways. And there's a part of, I think the part of the human that like when we've been unjustly attacked and treated, that we desire some form of vengeance or justice. And there was a part of a pull to these thoughts that was like these would it would be justified for me to carry out these actions but there's another part of my brain that would go this isn't who you are you know and if you were to do this you would deeply regret it and you think about like abigail and david you know david was going to go carry out uh well probably some wholesale slaughter of nabal and and whatnot because of his disregard for the king and abigail came along and said don't do this you'll regret it yeah. How does that, how has all this transpired into, you know, you said the health addiction started, or sorry, the health addiction, <laughs> the food <laughs> the addiction, addiction. Yeah, yeah. started. And it also, was that at the same time where anxiety started really rearing its ugly head or was it before then? 
Well, I think the anxiety showed up a little bit later, a couple of years down the road. And I say it probably showed up a couple of years down the road because I wasn't giving it a chance to show up. I would have been basically suppressing it. So yeah. um, using food to basically suppress any of it. But you can only push it down for so long before it eventually comes to the surface. And once once that happens, um, you know, and I tried to hide it from my wife, you know, she'd, she'd, you know, roll over to kind of snuggle with me in bed and she'd be like, your, your heart is beating so fast. What's happening right now? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I just got up and went to the bathroom and came back quickly or something like just, just trying to make up some cover story because I didn't want her to see me as like this weak man because I thought that anxiety um, made me look weak. That was my perception of masculinity at that time. And so um, I tried to hide it, but eventually like I couldn't, and it was happening multiple times a day. And as you know, with anxiety, one of the, one of the most troubling parts of it is the times between anxiety episodes where you're wondering when's the next one coming. That that's one of the hardest things to deal with. The other aspect of it is after particularly, you know, um, intense episode uh, comes depression so it's like redlining an engine and overheating it, and then the engine has to shut down to cool off before it can sort of get back to normal idling temperature kind of thing. And and so I, it would be like this black cloud would come over my head, and my heart would feel like it was made of lead. And it was it was a, really quite a dark experience. Um, because again, all, all the while I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm like wondering, like God, why am I, why am I experiencing all of this darkness and heaviness? And you know, I was never suicidal. Thankfully, that that was not the direction that this went for me. Right. But um, just uh, dread and heaviness, and um, I really, you know, and I'm very, very deeply grateful that I've had my wife through all of these experiences because she's been an absolute rock by my side. Um, never, never, ever, um, even contemplating leaving my side. In fact, in in sort of some of my lowest points, I offered her an out. In fact, I was like, you will be happier without me in your life. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you if you went home. My wife's from Australia. If you went home to Australia. I bet she's glad she's not there now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an understatement. Although admittedly it's hard to witness what's happening over there and to see her family. Like her, her parents, my in-laws live, I think like seven kilometers from her brother and where their grandchildren are. And not being allowed yeah. to see them because it's outside a five kilometer radius. Like it's just, it's, it's kind of gone to absurd levels there. Yeah. But, uh, that, that's another, that's another sidetrack. <laughs> no, for sure. So how do you, cause here's the thing. I'm really curious because in your bio, you talked about going through multiple episodes a day to very few now a year, you know, for me, <clears throat> I struggled with it. Felt like I'd, had a significant breakthrough for about a year and a half. And then one day my resting heart rate spiked to like 130. Yeah. I thought I was having a heart attack, went to the ER, my heart checked out fine. We did an echocardiogram. We did heart monitoring. Everything's good. And it comes back, "Ah, you have an anxiety. And I'm like, okay, but over what? Like, I don't know. And it just comes randomly. And like, like I can just be sitting still and all of a sudden it happens. I'm like, what? And like my mind can be blank. So how do we deal with that? And how do we overcome yeah. that in our life? Because you've had, you've had some, some healing in that area. And I, I want to know. Absolutely. So one of the misconceptions about anxiety, I think, is that it's rooted in like very present fear, um, for lack of a better way of expressing it. 
you can, anxiety in my the way that I see it is it's like the nervous system pulling the fire alarm. Yes. It's and, and the thing is is it doesn't it feels like it comes out of nowhere, but it's never completely unprompted. And so I had to take stock of all the different stressors in my life, those that were negotiable and those that were non-negotiable and say, what are the things, because we live in an, in an inherently stressful world, like mentally and emotionally in particular, a lot more so than physically. Um, and so I had to take stock of a lot of the stressors in my life because what happens is when the fire alarm gets pulled, it just means that incrementally things have been building up until it reaches a breaking point. And now all of this, like anxiety is in one sense, could we say burning off all of this nervous energy that's been built up. And when I say nervous energy, again, I don't mean like uh, a chattering scaredy cat. I mean, um, pent up stress sort of built up in our body that has to discharge. An example might be if you've ever seen like, um, say a dog in a thunderstorm and you'll see their back legs trembling and you go, you know, I, I feel sorry, oh, the poor dog, they're, they're scared. What's happening actually is through their pelvis, through muscular, rapid muscular contractions, they are discharging excess nervous energy. And as soon as the thunderstorm's gone, boom, they're fine because they discharged all of the energy. Whereas we as humans, we build it up and build it up and build it up and we don't discharge that energy in, in some way. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so one day, boom, it hits and you go, I didn't see it building up because often it builds up imperceptibly. Little by little, this stressor, that stressor. I mean, your dad, you got a podcast, you got other stresses in your life that are, you know, kind of non-negotiables. Um, it just builds up. And then one day it's like, boom, we have to burn off this energy. And it shows up in the form of a panic episode. So your heart's beating faster, your metabolism picks up, you're burning through blood sugar. Once the hormones are circulating, there's not really a way around it. Um one of the one of the actually most helpful books I read, I, I hesitate to recommend this um, because it uses a lot of colorful language. And okay. if you're okay with some colorful language, if you can see past that to see the value in what, what's being written, um, I would say it's a worthwhile read. If you're bothered by colorful language, then I wouldn't bother reading this book. <laughs> um, in short, it's called F Anxiety. <laughs> and it's by a gentleman, uh, he, his Hand, uh, Robert Duff, his sort of handle is Duff the Psych, and he has his hardcore self-help series. And uh, reading that helped me to understand anxiety kind of in a different level. And that understanding sort of started to take, allow me to take some of my power back that anxiety held over me. So when I, when I kind of understood at, at a different level what's happening in my body, that anxiety can't actually hurt me, here are some first aid measures, that made a huge difference. But there's also a second piece that I don't think it's talked about very much. I went to, um, I call him a chiropractic neurologist um, because he studies the brain and he's actually doing like a PhD and like uh, with a thesis in fibromyalgia, like he's a really intelligent guy. And he, he kind of mapped out my brain in a sense and figured out here's the areas of your brain that are under functioning. And so what would happen is when I would have a, an episode it would actually feel like I was floating out of my body. So under duress, it would feel like I was physically leaving my body. It was a really disconcerting feeling. Well, physically in the structure of the brain, there's a part called the parietal lobes. 
um, that's kind of in the middle of your brain, and they deal with determining your position in space. Where you know, if you hold your arm up and shut your eyes, you you know that your arm is being held up because of the parietal system. Well, when under duress, when that's not functioning properly, you can't feel that, and so it feels like I can't feel myself in my body. So one of the first aid measures was actually to punch myself in the leg. So give a very strong signal because the, the, the quiet signals weren't being, weren't being picked up. So to punch myself in the leg is a very strong signal that yes, in fact, I am physically present. Other things I would do, if I was with somebody else, I'd put my hand on their shoulder. So anchor to another human being. Um, and then actually becoming open about my struggles. And then so when an episode was happening, I could say to people, look, um, you don't have to do anything, uh, but I'm just experiencing it right now, just so you understand if I go a little bit quiet, I'm just navigating this. And then uh, my first aid breathing rhythm was four, seven, eight, four seconds in, seven seconds hold, eight seconds out. That out breath being twice as long as the in breath activates the parasympathetic nervous system because anxiety comes from the sympathetic nervous system. And so we call the sympathetic fight or flight and we call the parasympathetic rest and digest. And so... I, but the, the thing with something like say four, seven, eight is you don't want to only employ it when you're having a panic attack. Otherwise you're going to train your body or train your brain that four, seven, eight is connected to panic attacks. So I would practice this breathing rhythm and I would even practice it with my wife. So let's breathe together and practice this when things were calm and when things were good. So that my brain then started to recognize that when I breathe like this, it's time to be calm. And I found that you know, I could bring, instead of going, say, 30 minutes with sort of this anxiety episode ramping up, I could usually bring it down in under five minutes. So that was really powerful. The third piece of the puzzle, um, again, going back to this chiropractic neurologist, is what I call stabilizing the brain stem. The brain stem is the, the back part of our brain, very primal part of our brain that really triggers the threat response. And it was basically like it was firing off randomly. And so he took me through some, some treatment methodologies that basically calmed down the brainstem. Why this is interesting is because, and why I'm sharing this is because we want to, I guess the tendency is to, to treat anxiety like it is entirely a psychological issue, when in fact it's a physiological issue. Um, just as much as a psychological issue. In fact, I would argue that it starts more as a physiological issue and becomes a psychological issue as we experience it. So if we can, so for myself, I had to prioritize sleep like militantly and my wife was on board with it. I said, I must get my sleep and whatever I have to do, I got to get my sleep. Now at that time I didn't have kids, so I understand. And now I've, <laughs> I've got a kid. Um, it's a little bit more challenging, Show. but in, in, in whatever way possible, prioritizing sleep. So that's where a lot of resting happens because the things that I was doing, I was running a business 12 hours a day. I was trying to lift two hours a day, powerlifting. Um, I was using a lot of caffeinated products like pre-workouts and energy drinks and drinking a lot of coffee and so on. And maybe only sleeping five to six hours a night. So when I, I cut out all stimulants, including chocolate, chocolate's a stimulant. I cut out all stimulants, which really sucked because I was hooked on those two. Um, and I militantly prioritized my sleep. I made it a priority to, to practice four, seven, eight as a meditative breathing rhythm for at least three minutes a day. Um, I became open about my condition and my experience and explained to people because people don't, don't, don't know what to do if it's happening. 
And so I would always say to them, you don't have to do anything. You don't, it's not your responsibility to fix this. All you need to do is understand that when this happens, you don't have to panic. I'm going to be okay. I just need to bring my nervous system down. And all of these things really made a huge shift in kind of my experience of anxiety. Interesting. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm just taking <laughs> notes here. And maybe I could say something else to encourage yeah, people who are experiencing anxiety. It's not a death sentence. Um, there are, in some ways, I'm actually grateful for having experienced anxiety. And here's why. Anxiety is a really disturbed place to be. So it's, it's like the opposite of peace. Yeah. And what it really did is it made me really cherish peace when I had it. And so when it came to being in fellowship with other, other believers, um, that was a peaceful place for me to be. And it became something uh, I wasn't just doing because I felt like I, I was compelled to in, in, you know, as a part of my Christian faith, but because I wanted to, because I enjoyed the feeling of being connected to other people, uh, sharing a common faith, and there was peace in those gatherings. And so I really began to appreciate that at an entirely different level that I would not have been able to understand except that I experienced anxiety. You know, that's one of the biggest things in my life that I strive for is peace. And I think a lot of people who, who don't struggle with anxiety might not fully understand how valuable or how important peace feels in life because I like for me when I'm struggling with it, my heart rate goes up and it feels like it's beaten out of my chest. I feel hot. Mm -hmm. I feel bloated. And all I want to do is go lay down in front of a fan in the dark room. Yeah. Like like that's what I want to do because that's how I, that's how I calm myself down, bring my nervous center down And what's funny is like, I've woken up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. Like I was in the dead of sleep and I woke up in a panic attack, which is really frustrating. It it absolutely is. Um, Mine at night, mine would often be triggered by something I was dreaming about, but really dreaming is kind of an unusual way of consolidate. Like, or I shouldn't say unusual. It's how we kind of consolidate memories and, you know, but it's like when our brain's consolidating memories, it mixes and mashes stories together, including maybe things we might have seen in media or whatnot, and sort of in, you know, inserts us into the story and so on. Um, but the other thing to think about sleep is not just like resting. Sleep is also restoration. So actually, what our body, like, it's like the little workers in our body, you know, it's a bit of a simplification, but basically they go to work doing a lot of building and repairing. But one of the things that suppresses it is maybe excess circulating cortisol, which is one of the stress response hormones that we have. Now, we need some cortisol, by the way. Without it, we'd be dead. Um, but cortisol normally has kind of a rhythm. So here's the other thing. So normally, we have, we have what's known as a circadian rhythm, or we have many, actually, but we have a central circadian rhythm. That's like an internal body clock. And normally, what we would expect to see is that at nighttime, cortisol dips. And that when cortisol dips, melatonin picks up in our brain. And melatonin is that hormone that helps us um, 
get closer to sleepiness. It doesn't keep us asleep, but it moves us into sleepiness. If cortisol is high, it's difficult. It counters the production of melatonin. And so it can be difficult to fall asleep. And then you end up in a state known as tired but wired. So your circadian rhythm is kind of out of whack. So there's another piece of the puzzle, which is being, again, almost militant about screen time, blue light at night. You know, I put blue light filters and everything. I run an online business and sometimes I do work a little bit late at night. But getting that blue light away um, and having some quiet time before I before I go to bed, because if, if you just work until or if I would just work until I was exhausted, basically, and, and would fall asleep, I've never really I haven't given my body the opportunity to move into a restful state to fall asleep. I'm actually falling asleep out of sheer exhaustion. And there's a difference between the two. And so then in the middle of the night, um, your circadian rhythm is out of whack because normally in the morning, what's going to happen is cortisol is going to not spike, but it's going to increase. And that cortisol increase is necessary to bring us out of sleep and into wakeful alertness. One of the issues that we have is we will artificially spike cortisol with caffeine. (laughs) So now we're also messing with our circadian rhythm in another way. So cortisol, so we're really, we're getting in and out of this rhythm of cortisol dipping at night and rising um, in the morning, usually dips late morning, picks up around noon, dips afternoon. That's why we we have the coffee breaks is because that's when naturally um, cortisol dips occur in the human circadian rhythm. You drink coffee? Not anymore. Nope. Uh, I do. I do have have some decaf. Um, Yeah, I I have decaf. Yeah, but I I don't drink anything caffeinated. Um, Now, I, I will say like this year, I've had sips of caffeinated beverages and obviously nothing horrible has happened. Um, but I'd say I'm also like, because I'm uh, basically zero caffeine consumption, I'm also really sensitive to caffeine. So um, a typical cup of coffee, uh, a standard size might contain, uh, say, 100 milligrams of caffeine. But if you get one of those giant ones from like Starbucks, they're going to contain like 400 milligrams of caffeine, which is sort of double the daily dose we should have. And it should be recognized that this is a problem when we have an entire society fully dependent on caffeine to function. Yeah. That's not a rested society. It, it's funny that you say that because when people offer me coffee or soda, I'm like, I, I don't drink it. And like, What's wrong with you? Don't you need to stay energized? I was like, no, I don't. Because if I do, then I'll go into anxiety. And so I actually don't drink caffeine. But the largest amount of caffeine that I drink would be in kombucha, basically. Right. Because uh, it, it comes from a fermented black tea, yeah. Right. Uh, but even then, I drink half a bottle. You know, I'm not drinking a full bottle. Yeah. And so, you know, and I've noticed, dude, I'm, I'm really glad I'm talking to you because I'm seeing a lot of the same things that you're talking about, things that I've been discovering in my sleep pattern, even in foods that I'm eating. You know, I'm, I'm being more cautious about like, so one of them is tomato paste. Like, for whatever reason, that will give me anxiety. Like if I eat pizza uh, with tomato paste base, like I can eat pizza as long as it's like barbecue or ranch based. But if it's tomato paste based, it, it just it triggers anxiety for some reason. And I don't understand it. So that could be because um, tomatoes they can exacerbate reflux, which can reflux can sometimes feel yes. like a tightening of your chest. And the tightening of your chest, a feeling of like, I can't breathe, I feel this burning sensation in my chest, it might be imperceptible, but it's enough for your nervous system to pick it up and go, bingo, what just happened here?
you know. Actually, that is because I also get acid reflux when I have tomato. Like I can, yeah. I can eat salsa from a Mexican restaurant all day long and be fine, but something in tomato paste itself could be the concentration of it. So tomato paste is much more concentrated than salsa is. Salsa is more watery and diluted. Um, that would be that's that because I love salsa. It's my it's my favorite condiment. Yeah, but. Me too. I had to, and I mean, I'm a nutritionist, uh, so I have an idea around these things, but I had to, the things to think about are coffee, caffeine, mint, chocolate. These things can exacerbate reflux because they actually, mint, yes, like peppermint. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, The reason why I think that, so I I have a prayer booth at the state fair and I put mints out uh, for people to come. And I've been, you know, eating those bad boys all week, just occasionally. And I'm getting these weird panic attacks. I don't want to even say panic attack, anxiety attack. I'm like, this came out of nowhere. And I don't fully understand. Like, that's interesting. Okay. Keep going, please. Yeah. So what happens? So at the top of our stomach, we kind of have a couple of valves. Then they're, they're a donut shaped muscle essentially that opens and closes. They're called sphincters. And Peppermint can relax that uh, esophageal sphincter, and because of that, it doesn't fully close. And the because con- we need stomach acid. Make no mistake, stomach acid is very valuable. Um, we need it to break down protein because protein is a difficult macronutrient to digest, and protein helps us break it down. Or sorry, acid helps us break it down. The acid in our stomach also serves as a protective mechanism for if we ingest um, unhelpful organisms, shall we say. Uh, the acid can kill off a lot of that before it ever becomes problematic. And we probably have survived a lot more things that would have given us food poisoning, except that we have lots of stomach acid. So stomach acid is rarely the issue itself with reflux. It's usually a secondary issue. And so if the sphincter valve, so like taking a PPI, which I had to take a a proton pump inhibitor or like an acid reflux medication, I had to take that for a period of time, but it's not intended to be a lifelong prescription. It's intended to be a short window of time um, blocking the acid to allow your esoph- esophageal tissue to heal. Um, you can also take a supplement known as DGL, D-glycerizinated licorice, um, which is clinically studied and shown to help heal esophageal tissue, which then makes it a little bit more robust and more resilient to reflux. Um, but yes, onions, um, so shallots, mint, uh, tomatoes, chocolate, caffeine, these are the more common ones that can cause reflux. You say onions? Yes. And I love onions. I know. I know. Um, So I had to, and it's not that, well, I almost never eat them now because I get really belchy when I eat them, which, you know, uh, it it saddens my heart. My wife cheers like a mad woman because (laughs) she says if I eat onions, I smell like an onion for a week and my wife has a really sensitive smell. (laughs) So she loves that I don't eat onions and garlic now. Um, I'm saddened by it. So these things can... Um, because they relax the valve at the top of your stomach, um, they can cause a little bit of your stomach contents to spill out and to burn the esophagus. Sometimes it's subtle enough that you wouldn't necessarily feel the traditional heartburn, but you might feel like you need to clear your throat. And that's known as silent reflux. Um, so that's an, another sort of indication, which I think most most North Americans struggle with silent reflux. Um, and so when you become aware of these things and kind of make some of these other shifts, because I remember I can picture like sitting at my kitchen table and just like feeling this sort of crushing sensation in my chest and trying to stay calm, you know? 
And it was a really, really uncomfortable feeling and trying to breathe my way through it. But uh, the way that my my chiropractic neurologist uh, explained it, he's like, he's not a very big man. He's maybe five foot six and 140 pounds soaking wet kind of thing. And I'm six one, like 240. So I'm like a I'm, I'm a pretty big dude. He's like, if I sat on your chest, like he said, you could handle it for a while. But he says, eventually something's going to get triggered. You know, it's good. You know, whether no matter no matter how much you try to sort of express calming thoughts and breathe and stuff like that, like eventually, you know, uh, your primal nervous system is going to win out and you're going to get triggered. I was like, that's an interesting perspective. Man. <sighs> what else do I need to know? <laughs> I mean, I have a whole bunch of stuff that you've kind of already answered, but like, you know, you talked about some different ways to cope with it. What are some ways that we can, you talked about for yourself, how to figure out some triggers and stuff. What are some ways that we can figure out what, what triggers us? And maybe I'll take one step back and say, like you have, if there's some new things that I've shared here, um, you probably have enough to start. Yeah. And so don't try to bring too much in all at once. It's like when you start to introduce changes, like pick pick the highest leverage change you can make, work on introducing that, and then work on building on it. Anxiety recovery is a process. It's not a, I do all these things and boom, instantly I'm better. It's a process. Um, be open about your condition, especially as men. We struggle to talk about mental health. And that shouldn't be an issue because here's the thing. You didn't choose anxiety. You didn't put up your hand and say, I'd like anxiety so people can perceive me as weak. Right. You didn't You didn't say that. So being open about it, because it's not a sign of weakness, it doesn't mean that you're like a frightened, scaredy cat kind of person. It means you have a nervous system that's overactive. Very, very different. But the sensations, once they start, feel very uncomfortable. The racing heart, the hormones circulating, the, the racing thoughts my brain would get a lot of what's known as cognitive distortions. So it's a very distorted perception of reality. Uh, one, for example, is known as catastrophizing. So it's like, if I have a headache, I probably have a brain tumor. You know, that's, that's, that's a huge leap, but that's known as, that's a, so that is a cognitive distortion. I have a headache. I probably have a brain tumor starting. Um, you know, I feel a tickle in my chest. I'm probably going to die from pneumonia. Thing like so that's catastrophizing. There's other ones like overgeneralization. I always do this. I'm such an idiot. I never you know get this right, and so on. So there's all these sort of pieces to the puzzle as well. So becoming aware of self-talk and cognitive distortions that can also become triggers. Um, that's also helpful because I say really awareness is the first step to change. Because many of the things that would trigger us are things that we've probably encountered so many times we don't think about them consciously. We don't realize them to be a trigger. Um, but I would also say it's really, really important to communicate with uh, people that are close to us. I, I tried to make it clear to people, I'm not looking for your sympathy. You know, I, I don't need you to feel sorry for me. I just need you to understand that this happens. And when it does, this is, I don't really need you to do anything other than just be there with me. You don't have to say anything. Don't put pressure on yourself. Uh, you know, it can like make it worse if you're like, oh my gosh, what do you need me to do? Are you going to be okay? Like, we, we don't need that. So, so being open about it and um, having having someone close to you in a support network that when you're experiencing it, you can say, okay, I don't need anything from you other than just to be with me. Maybe you want to practice breathing with me. Because I know at least in my experience, even when an episode was happening, there's still a part of my brain that goes, this, isn't, this can't actually hurt you. But it feels it sucks right now. It feels really horrible right now. But it can't actually hurt you. Right. 
Well, not to overcomplicate this because like you said, we have enough to start with. Um, man, I, I think we'll probably want to do a follow-up later. <laughs> I think so. I'm open to that, man. Uh, yeah, that, that's because here's the other thing I'll just touch on. You know, when I, when I sort of publicly talked about my struggle with anxiety, um, the first thing that happened was this. I had talked about it on social media a few years back, and I was really kind of nervous about it. There was this huge outpouring of support. In one sense, that's a really good thing. In another sense, it's a slippery slope. Because it felt really good to be on the receiving end of all of this sympathy. Action, yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that feels so good. I want more of that. Well, then that can actually condition us to want to stay stuck and remain a victim to a condition because of how it garners us sympathy. But I didn't want to be a victim. Right. And so I really shifted my narrative around, you know, I said, I experience anxiety. It's not who I am. You know, for me... I'm, it's weird because, you know, when the, I had a few years ago, a test done and just, just not a test, but a, what do you call it? Health assessment for, you know, just your general checkup. And they gave me a small psyche valve and basically came back to that. They said I had anxiety and depression. I'm like, no, I don't No. Because the way I looked at depression was that, you know, I don't like my life, you know, I want to die, and which is not the case. I love my life. I'm yeah. grateful for my life. <clears throat> and what I did realize, well, I do have anxiety tendencies. And so I've been on this journey of learning more about anxiety. I'm not as much about depression because, again, you know, I, in general, I really like my life. I don't struggle with um, suicide or anything like that. But I didn't want to be labeled as depression. I didn't want to be labeled as someone who has anxiety or struggles with it because it's like, oh, yeah, something's wrong with you. You're mentally weak. Or, right. yeah. or even even if for insurance purposes, they're like, oh, you're a risk. And I'm like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a suicidal risk. That and is... So- yeah, that's a real misconception around depression is that because the one that gets highlighted the most is that those that experience depression are suicidal. That's the most dramatic manifestation of depression. And because of that, it gets the most attention. And because it's so kind of alarming, it really pushes out other manifestations of depression in sort of our conscious understanding because we're naturally wired to like look for threats. And so that one is the glaring one in the room. But the other thing to think about is that mental health is not an on-off switch where you're perfectly mentally healthy or you're mentally ill. There's a whole, I say there's a lot of numbers between zero and a hundred. There's a whole spectrum of people's experiences. Not only that, mental health, it's not written in stone. In other words, you can improve your mental health. You're not a helpless victim that will always and only and ever be trapped by this. So anxiety is still something that's in my life. It's still something I'm aware of. It's still, but my experience of it is much less severe, much less frequent, and much less intense because of the lifestyle steps I took to really manage it. And I say that because I want people to have hope. I'm not saying that I know how to cure you. I don't know how to cure anything. I'm not a doctor. (laughs) I have to put the disclaimer in there. But in this, what I want people to understand is that you are allowed to take your health into your own hands. 
you are allowed to take steps to improve your health. And maybe you can't make this condition go away, but you can stop feeding the condition. And I think understanding that means that while it might always be present with you in a part of your life, it's not a life sentence. Jonathan, wow. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Yeah, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Where can people follow you at? Well, in, in my professional line of work, when I'm not chatting about my, my anxiety, uh, I run a nutrition coaching business called Freedom Nutrition Coaching. So you can find me at freedomnutritioncoach.com. Um, I do have a podcast called Wellness Unplugged. So you can go to freedomnutrition.rocks slash wellnessunplugged. And I'll put a, I didn't really come up in conversation, but I'll, I'll offer a free resource for folks as well. I do have an ebook called Crush Your Cravings. So helping people deal with emotional eating, nighttime snacking, that kind of stuff. And again, it's at freedomnutrition.rocks slash crush your cravings. And lastly, I would say uh, I haven't hit the 5,000 friend limit on Facebook. So you're welcome to send me a friend request on, on Facebook. I'm pretty, pretty easy to find, I think. My handle is Canadian Nomad, but there's only one N. Um, and uh, so Canadian O-M-A-D. You're welcome to send me a friend request and say, hey, I heard you on uh, I heard you on Evan's podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.